Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today, we're going to hear about the book, Not Sacred, Not Scores, Indigenous Feminism Redefined by Cherry Smiley. And it's going to be discussed by Cherry Smiley and we hope Faye Blaney, who will jump onto the webinar in a bit. Um, this Radical Feminist Perspectives is a series of webinars run by radical feminists whose voices have been cancelled or silenced in universities, schools and the media. Frustrated, we cannot share what we know in these places. We're offering this online series of webinars here. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Cherry, and over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to talk about this book that um, that is a labor of of love and uh, emerged from uh, I guess you could say anger and frustration uh, and the the horrible things that I went through um, as a PhD student. Uh, so the the book came out of uh, my PhD dissertation uh, in communication uh, studies. So. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, about the book. Uh, first I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Cherry Smiley. I come from the Itlikatmuk or Thompson First Nation from, um, the Nicola Valley in British Columbia, Canada, and also from the Diné or Navajo Nation from the Southwestern United States. Um, I... You know, people, a lot of times women will ask me, um, you know, how, how did I get involved? How did, how did, you know, how did I, how did I become a, a feminist? Um, you know, how, what was my kind of journey here? How did I end up doing what I, what I do? And um, I usually say that, that that journey, I think, began um, when I was very, very young. Uh, so I grew up um, in, in Canada um, and in the United States, but we'll talk about Canada uh, here because that's where I live. Um, the statistics for Indigenous women in Canada are absolutely horrific. So um, very, very, very high rates of poverty, of disability, uh, very high rates of male violence against women and girls, uh, very high rates of addiction, uh, suicide, um, in, uh, being um, incarcerated in, in prison or jail. Uh, so Indigenous women are, are, are very much criminalized. Um, you know, lower rates of completion of, of high school. Um, uh, basically, um, you know, Indigenous women and girls in Canada are, are facing tremendous a tremendous kind of tidal wave of forces that work to keep us, um, keep us poor, you know, keep us homeless, keep us, um, you know, suffering from, from the impacts of, of male violence, um, all of these things. So, uh, so we hear these statistics a lot. We have also in recent times had a national inquiry uh, into murdered and disappeared Indigenous women and girls in Canada. So that happened just a couple of years ago. Um, and that those rates are, are, are just startling and um, horrific. 
So many, many, many Indigenous women and girls in Canada have gone missing or been murdered, primarily by men, of course. Um, and so we were able to uh, get enough um, momentum going, uh, Indigenous women and, and our allies, to push the, the government to, to hold a national inquiry on this, on this issue. They did. Uh, it went horribly. And, uh, and Indigenous women and girls continue to go missing um, and be murdered at, at um, incredibly, incredibly high rates. So, um, so you hear these statistics all the time and you hear these horror stories all the time. Um, and so that's, that's what I grew up in, uh, essentially was, you know, in, in those horror stories. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's where, um, that's where things started for me. I, I'm very lucky to have been raised by my maternal grandmother. Um, she was my favorite person in the world. She, she, she passed away a couple of years ago at, at uh, 97 years old. And she was always somebody who, um, she did what she wanted to do. And, uh, as a, as a little example, I, I wrote a poem about her, um, uh, that opens the book. And so I remember talking to her about menstruation and what used to happen, you know, traditionally with that. And uh, she was like, oh, yeah, you know, there's all these rules and, um, you know, things you can do and things you can't do. And um, she said that one time she was so frustrated that she said, because uh, apparently you're not supposed to walk behind elders uh, when you're menstruating. And she said, well, if they don't want any, anybody to walk behind them, why don't they go sit in a corner? <laughs> so she was very, um, she didn't ex accept uh, cultural practices simply because, you know, this is what was being, uh, you know, uh, communicated to her as traditional. Um, so she never taught us any of those uh, menstruation taboos. So when I was when I was younger, I thought, oh boy, maybe I'm not, Maybe I'm not, you know, native enough, <laughs> um, you know, as I grew up and I went to university and um, I was learning then about all of these things I'm not supposed to be doing. Oh, my goodness, that I've been doing. Um, and then I just realized, you know, I, I came to learn how incredible my grandma was for, um, you know, teaching us culture and teaching us tradition, but also teaching us not to get walked, you know, not to just accept um accept any kind of discrimination or, or any limitation because we were female, um, where, regardless of where that limitation was coming from. So, um, so I'm very lucky to have had her in my life and I miss her every day, every minute. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm very grateful to, to, have had, to have had her teach me that and to have had her um, show me that in how she lived her life. So, um, yeah, so I wish you all could have met her. <laughs> you would have loved her. Um, so this, so this book, Not Sacred, uh, Not Squaws, Indigenous Feminine, Feminism Redefined. Um, so it was this, this PhD dissertation that I, that I did, but it came, it started, the, the, write, the writing of the book started from when I was very, very young, right? And I began to question why, why things were happening. Uh, why can't I do that? 
um, you know, encouraged by my grandma to, um, to constantly be asking questions. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I grew up, I had a, a lot of issues in my twenties, all my kind of, I was, I felt so alone. Um, I developed really serious eating disorder and, um, had all kinds of health issues going on because of what, what had happened, um, and was happening, um, to me and what was going on in my life at that time. Um, so I ended up in a feminist theory class and I was very lucky. This was many years ago, very lucky to have a professor who was, um, you know, using texts from Dale Spender and Audre Lorde and, you know, these amazing, um, these amazing feminists. Um, so I'm very lucky that that I was introduced to it, to actual, to feminism um, in university, which I know many, many young women are, are not. Uh, they're actually denied access um, to um, feminist theory and, and feminist methodologies in universities. And what happened at that at that time was that when I began reading these texts, um, I learned a few things. The first thing I learned is that it wasn't my fault. And sometimes that can sound a little um, it's like, oh, okay, but no, that 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 saves women's lives, you know, when they learn it's not their fault. I learned that other women were going through similar things. And, and that saves women li women's lives too, um, when we learn that we're not alone. Um, and then I also uh, was given words, I was given a vocabulary, a way to talk about what had happened. And I was given a frame that actually made sense to me um, with everything that had happened in my life uh, and was happening in my life. It gave me um, a way, a way to, to, to look at what was going on. And as I say in the book, feminism, and when I say feminism, I, I mean radical feminism, but I just call it feminism. Um, it's the only theory and the only methodology that does that. It's the only theory and the only methodology that tells women it's not their fault, that centers women, doesn't forget about women. Um, it's the only theory and methodology that does that. So any other kind of, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to kind of degender everything and, you know, use indigenous methodologies or, you know, this, this constant pressure to um, forgive indigenous men or ignore, you know, the, the sexism and discrimination and male violence that happens from indigenous men towards indigenous women. Um, so there's a lot of pressure to, uh, to, um, to look, to look at things, uh, you know, in a, in a way that, uh, is about indigenous peoples. And when, when we say peoples, uh, they mean men. Um, so it's, it's, it, it can be very hard and very lonely. Um, I'm very lucky that I met a number of indigenous women who have mentored me over the years. Um, so I've been incredibly fortunate in that sense. Um, I also did frontline work. Uh, so worked at a rape crisis center and a transition house for battered women and their children. Um, decided I wanted to make art, went to school to learn, learn how to make art, which was its own, 
its own uh, pile of shit. Um, I mean, I learned some great things, but, you know, also really felt the, um, you know, the, the, the patriarchy that's so deeply embedded um, in universities, whether they're, you know, arts-based or not. Um, and then decided, all right, I'm going to do a PhD partly because I wanted, this is, so this, partly because I wanted, um, I knew that, you know, the letters behind your name, like, I, I don't think that it's fair and I don't think it's the way the world should be, but in our world now, you know, that, that gives you some, it gives you, you know, some, uh, credibility, um, you know, it's stupid, but, uh, it gives you some credibility, but I was really looking forward to having that time to read and think and learn and create something that I was, I hoped would be useful to other women in the women's liberation movement. Um, and, and I, I hope that's what I did. Um, I hope that's, you know, what has, what has resulted from this, but I, I do know that, um, I understand the barriers and the pushback, you know, in universities to study something that's not going to challenge anything, right. You, um, you know, to do research for research sake. And, and I understand that it's, you know, a lot easier to go that route, but I do think at the end of the day, being in university, it is a privilege. Um, having that time to think and write and um, research. Um, and that as, as feminists, you know, we, I, I do believe that we are obligated then to use that privilege to, to further um, women's liberation. So to make sure that when we're finished, this research benefits somebody other than myself. Um, I think that that's so important and I know that it's hard, but, um, it is doable. It just makes things a lot more difficult. <laughs> um, so I survived that process. It was, it was, I really, I survived that process. Um, I remember I said that once and, uh, <laughs> in the university and I had somebody, you know, respond to me and say, you know, is that maybe too strong of a word? And I was like, oh no. No, 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 no. I survived that process. And all the while I'm thinking, well, you know, when people are misgendered, you know, then they, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm suicidal. Nobody's like, oh, <laughs> is that too strong of a word? Right. So it's only when women are, are talking about women's experiences, you know, and women's feelings and talking about our realities, our material realities that were, were questioned on that. Right. We're wrong, of course. Um, so it was, it was quite the, um, quite the journey. I did get, there was some amazing things that came out of that. So that's not to say that every, every woman that I met, you know, that this was, it was all bad. I, it wasn't. And I, I was really fortunate to be able to, um, really get some clarity, I think, around my own, my own politics and to really dig deep into research. So, um, some very, I'm very grateful for that, you know, and to, for the support that I did get, you know, in the university that, you know, I, I couldn't have, couldn't have done it without, 
um, without that, but was able to meet, you know, academics and, and, and other women who think similar, you know, and, and um, had similar politics. And so, so that was really great as well, you know, to find, to find those women. So, um, so maybe, um, if Sheila or <laughs> Joe have any questions, perhaps maybe that can, that can help, help here a little bit. Yeah. Now I'm, I, I haven't read the book, so I will ask you about all about that and all the parts of it. That might be useful. Would you be able to do that? Yeah. Because yeah. let's just say to the audience that the, the woman who's supposed to be interviewing today has not come, but it is two o'clock in the morning for Cherry and for Faye. So maybe that's not entirely surprising. Um, can I just say that it was it's a great delight for me to talk to Cherry today because I met her 15 years ago in Vancouver at a wonderful event organized by Vancouver, by Vancouver Rape Relief on Prostitution. And she was speaking on one of the panels. It went on for a fortnight, wonderful event. And I can really remember from that event, the thing that stuck in my mind absolutely more than anything else was um, material uh, about the Trail of Tears, which is indigenous Canadian women and what happened to them uh, along the way as they were trafficked into prostitution. I think the assumption was that they were being trafficked into prostitution. I wonder if you could just go back to that moment and, and tell me something, tell us something about that. Sure. So, um, so the rates, the, uh, the rates of indigenous women and girls that are, that are in prostitution are absolutely staggering. Um, so Indigenous women and, and Indigenous girls are just grossly, grossly overrepresented in, in prostitution. Uh, and that's true across Canada. I would say that's probably true um, on a more global scale as well. Um, so what happens um, in BC, so in a lot of the more kind of northern, more remote um, communities, there's very little uh, public kind of transportation infrastructure. There's not as many um, health centers and things like that. So often women are having to go uh, from their community and, and travel to, a, a, you know, a slightly larger one, uh, perhaps for work, perhaps, you know, for a doctor's appointment, for, you know, childcare, wh whatever it is. And what that does, I think, in combination as well with the, um, the many, many man camps and the kind of, you know, resource um, Ex exploitation, the the that you know, just destruction of of the land there. Um, so you have all these these camps of men who have are getting paid way too much money uh, and have basically free reign to do what they want. They're away from any you know social um, uh, you know uh, structures that they're you know they're kind of used to. They have no accountability. Basically, they do what they want. Um, so you have that going on. You have this lack of um, ability for women to kind of get from one place to another when they need when they need to get there. So there's a particular stretch of highway uh, called the Highway of Tears um, in northern BC, and there have been so many um, women, some non-indigenous women, but overwhelmingly indigenous women and girls that have gone missing along that particular stretch of highway. Um, and that's you could say is is true. 
across, you know, the North, uh, where women are are needing to get somewhere um, and, you know, are being picked up and um, murdered, essentially, or picked up and raped or gang raped. Um, so you also have really high rates of, of prostitution there as well, again, because you have these men with like tons of money, um, you know, who are there. Uh, and are, you know, more than happy to to exploit um, the inequality of, of women and girls in the North. And so what you have as well is you have all of these routes, a lot of them, you know, like truck routes are, are one of the ways uh, that, that women get to Vancouver. But you have this kind of network of highways where women, Indigenous women and girls are essentially trafficked, um, so brought down from the North. Uh, into Vancouver. And then you have kind of circuits of um, uh, highways and cities then where um, Indigenous women and girls and other women and girls as well are moved around um, within the province, sometimes into the states. You know, you have Seattle there. Um, you know, Vancouver is a port city. So there's, you know, a lot of activity going on in that sense. So it's a very, very dangerous um, reality for Indigenous women. And I, I can't kind of emphasize that enough. And I, I just want to say that when, so obviously, you know, with the, the, the world has changed and there's a lot less travel um, happening. But before this, I used to travel quite a bit. And every time I got somewhere, wherever it was uh, in the world, I had to make sure that I called my grandma because my grandma would call me incessantly until I answered. But the reason that she did that was because she was so afraid that I wouldn't make it from point A to point B. And that's, um, that's true still today with my sisters, with, um, you know, other Indigenous women, you're constantly checking in with one another because you don't actually know if you're going to make it from point A to point B. Now, I seem to remember back then it was being said that at least a thousand women a year were being trafficked down this route, they thought, or disappearing along this route. I don't know what uh, figures we have now. Does that seem possible? Or Yeah, definitely. Um, there was definitely at that time, uh, women were kind of gathered, trying to gather numbers and statistics um, and these kinds of things. So those have just exploded um, as we've gotten more information. Um, the the Canadian the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Force came out with their own statistics saying this is how many <laughs> murdered and disappeared women there are according to our statistics so that was in the thousands um, so it's it's definitely not um, anecdotal like it's yeah. it's yeah. yeah it's it's um, it's very obvious yeah and can I just say that it it's it's very similar to the situation in uh, Australia. Of course, as you say, everywhere Indigenous women exist, they are involved in prostitution. In Australia, when I lived there, which was up till 2015, there were stories about uh, children, Aboriginal children, eight, nine years old, who would go up to and beg from trucks at truck stops. They'd be taken uh -huh. onto the trucks and taken to other towns where they'd be uh -huh. often sexually used in between. And the number of women, Indigenous women in prostitution in Sydney was very high compared with other prostitution. So there are very interesting uh -huh. similarities. I don't know whether anybody's ever looked at that comparison, but 
I think that's very interesting what you're uh-huh. saying. So uh-huh. do, if we just go now to your book, uh, can you explain what it was about and why you wrote it? I have a copy of it right here. <laughs> um, so, so I'm very, I'm very, I'm very proud of this book, and I'm so grateful to Spinifex Press. Like, without them, I don't, I, I, I don't think anybody would have probably wanted to publish this book. Um, so they've just been absolutely incredible. I'm just so, yeah, buy all of their books. They have, they just come out uh, with the most incredible, I agree. incredible library of like radical feminist texts. It's yeah, it's incredible. So, um, so the book, so the book started out in one place or I guess the dissertation, but we'll, t- we'll talk about it in terms of the book. I did write it. I didn't write it in an academic key kind of way. Cause I'm not an academic key kind of woman. So, um, so I'm kind of the same in whatever kind of context I'm in. So I don't like to use, you know, big fancy words and these kinds of things. So, um, so I, I wrote it as if I was kind of writing a book. <laughs> Again, my poor grandma. Uh, when I was in uh, doing an undergraduate degree, I would read my essays to her over the phone. <laughs> my yeah, what a what a, a generous grandma. Um, and if she understood the essay, then I would know that I was being clear. Um, and if she didn't, then I'm like, oh shit, I'm not being clear enough in my writing. Um, I better go back and fix that. Um, so I wanted to make sure that as many women as possible would be able to understand what I was saying. So the it started out being about prostitution and the prostitution of Indigenous women and girls as a process of colonization. So that was kind of what I was looking at at the beginning. So um, I interviewed women in uh, prostitution, Indigenous uh, survivors of prostitution in Canada. Um, I spoke with women in New Zealand and in Australia. I was in New Zealand for almost four months. Um, and so was, was, uh, came in with this, um, you know, these ideas of, of, of what, it, what would happen. And what happened was about halfway through, um, I realized I was doing everything upside down. Uh, so basically what I had to do was, um, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So if I'm looking at the prostitution of indigenous women and girls as a process of colonization, um, what do I mean by colonization? Like, what, what is that? So I looked it up. Um, I mean, I think indigenous women, we know it in our lives. We know it when we see it. Um, but um, in terms of kind of definitions and, and this kind of thing, so, and as I was doing that, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who came up with these definitions? I was like, oh, men, that's right. Men came up with the definition of colonization um, and with the kind of popular uh, understanding of colonization that we have in Canada, doesn't take into account uh, indigenous women in any kind of meaningful way, right? So I was also looking at, I had a, a women's committee that was outside of the university. And one of the things that they really wanted me to, to look at and to talk about was the male violence that happens or the male violence um, from um, indigenous men towards indigenous women. 
And that is one of the hardest things to talk about for um, a number of different reasons. And Indigenous women are just, I mean, it's hard enough to talk about any kind of male violence that's been done to you. But when it's from, you know, a man in your own family and in your own community, from your own nation, it's like a whole other level of um, of silencing. So, um, so I, so I, I had to, oops, my watch is talking to me. So I had to uh, come up. So I, so I was like, okay, I need to, to look at this colonization. So then I thought, okay, so what would a definition of colonization look like if it did included women or it came from a women's perspective? So, or a feminist perspective. So I, I, I decided then to redefine colonization as primarily a sex-based process um, that also, you know, has to do with, with race, but it's primarily a sex-based process. Um, and so I was building on, you know, work from Robin Morgan and other women who have had begin to begun to theorize um, this. So it wasn't, that wasn't new in that sense. Um, but in terms of accounting for uh, male violence from indigenous men and, and for, uh, for indigenous women's material realities, um, I had to, to build on those, uh, on those beginnings. So I basically, uh, yes, redefined colonization as a sex, primarily a sex-based practice. Um, and then looked at how prostitution kind of fit into that. So um, the the most kind of um, succinct way, I think. So it, it it I was like having like a mental ooh, mental crisis because I I I was sure, you know. And then I was like, oh wait a minute, I gotta I have to have to reevaluate my own um, what I know and my own politics and my own you know what what I've been you know what I've been saying. Um, I really need to, to take a look at this and, and I have to consider that maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. It turned out I was. <laughs> so the, um, the most succinct way that I, that I think about, um, the distinction is back. So when Sheila and I were, were at this event together, I, I remember, and for many years, I would say that colonization was imposed on indigenous communities. Now I say that, uh, colonization was, or sorry, uh, so I would say patriarchy was imposed on indigenous communities in a process of colonization, right? So patriarchy was imposed on indigenous communities is what I would say. Now I say uh, patriarchy was adopted by indigenous men. And so it's a, um, a perspective that does take into account um, uh, male violence from Indigenous men, how that process works, how Indigenous men have colluded with non-Indigenous men to kind of create these conditions um, where an Indigenous women and girls, whether they're in their, their First Nations community, whether they're in the city, on the reserve, in a small town, whatever, are facing uh, very, very similar um, threats, you know, to, to our lives. Um, and so... It's um, so I, I did realize, too, that because um, I was like, oh, boy, I'm like, oh, everybody's nobody's going to be happy with this book now, um, which is, you know, it's fine. I think if you, you know, if you piss off the right people, you know, then you're probably you're doing a good job. Right. Sheila. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, so uh, so that's kind of the major like one of the major. Um, 
changes, I guess, or or deepening, probably deepening, not so much a change of politics, a deepening of politics. And one of the other the other things that shifted for me in the course of the book as well was looking at the ways in Canada that Indigenous women are separated from non-Indigenous women. So, for example, in the national inquiry that we had about murdered and disappeared Indigenous women, there was, you know, the, the all these people doing the inquiry and they did this huge uh, literature review and they did not look at one single feminist report, feminist piece of literature um, that looked at male violence against women and girls. So that whole body of knowledge that feminists have come up with and have learned and have articulated was totally ignored. So they, they were treating Indigenous women as if we are completely different and that you know male violence against Indigenous women is completely different from male violence against um, non-Indigenous women and girls. And what a disservice. So the, the ways that I that I think about that now are that um, I, I, I think about it in terms of particularities. So male violence against Indigenous women and girls happens uh, in, in particular ways. So there are there are differences in terms of, you know, context and, and history and all these kinds of things. Um, but that fundamentally the male violence is is the same. Um, but there are, you know, specificities and, and particularities that pertain to Indigenous women and to other groups of women as well. Um, but just making sure that we are looking at those commonalities, um, you know, and, uh, you know, building from there. Because I, I just think that was such a slap in the face, you know. I mean, to have a national inquiry on male violence against women and girls, Indigenous or not, and to totally dismiss all feminist <laughs> theorizing research, um, you know, on the matter was just, you know, it was, it was, um, it was such a, yeah, it was essentially, I think, a slap in the face because there's a lot of, we know a lot already. We don't need to, you know, reinvent the wheel here. We just need to further, you know, further our thinking and uh, further our action, right? Yes. Now, I think one of the, the similarities uh, between Indigenous women, it's not exactly the same in, in the history of other women, is that the connection between the use of Indigenous women in the process of development, which I wrote about in my book, Industrial Div uh, Vagina, and I was looking at the use of Indigenous women in Papua New Guinea when they were taken to the mining camps and prostituted, and I was looking at um, what happened in Australia, which is where Indigenous women in the 19th, early 20th century were being exchanged between men for bottles of whiskey, apparently. I found details about that in an oh. archive, in a women's archive. That was amazing to find that way back when. Um, and what was happening was that Indigenous women were being used in camps for in, in extractive industries. That was happening in Papua New Guinea, happening in Australia. Uh -huh. And I'm assuming it must have been happening in Canada yeah. as well. And so it's still it's still happening in Canada. It's yeah. still happening in Canada. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I mean, in Australia now, there is a pattern in which women are taken from one side of the country to the other to be used in hotel rooms uh, around mining camps. But I'm uh -huh. not exactly sure who is being used. 
Also, uh, Japanese girls would be trained in Singapore, sent over to the mining camps, as was happening in the late 19th century in Australia. So there is, there's a very important history about how indigenous women uh-huh. destruction and exploitation of indigenous women was crucial to the to the whole process of development and the uh-huh. process of the build up of the wealth of these nations, which I find uh-huh. really really interesting. I'm assuming that that is the same as what happened in Canada. Yes, it's it's very very similar. Um, so one of the things that I learned that I didn't know previous was that. Um, the very first uh, prostitution legislation that came about in Canada was in the Indian Act. So the Indian Act is a piece of legislation that only applies to a particular group of First Nations people. So status First Nations people, it's all very complicated how that happens. But um, so the so the initial uh, pro- uh, legislation governing prostitution only applied to indigenous peoples, and really it only applied to indigenous women and girls. And the definition of prostitution in in the Indian Act in the beginning was so broad that basically any indigenous woman or girl could be uh, criminalized for being um, in prostitution, whether she actually was or not. Um, one of the the pieces of literature that I I I used and that I really enjoyed was a book by Sarah Carter. She's a a feminist historian in Canada and she, uh, her book, hold on, I'm just going to find the name of it. Um, She had a, has a credit in an, an incredible analysis. So it's called capturing women, the manipulation of cultural imagery in Canada's Prairie West. See, so she has this incredible um, analysis that looks at how indigenous women, but also how how white women were used in not just the kind of, uh, you know, exploitation of the land, but in the, the, the process of nation building into what became Canada. And so she looks at the ways essentially that indigenous women were constructed and they still are. We still are today as, you know, savage, as like, you know, sex, crazy, uh, violent. Uh, wild, um, you know, all of these were just like, you know, all of these, these, these things that are not, not true <laughs> about us um, as women. So Indigenous women have been and continue to be um, constructed in that way. And even I think um, Indigenous women, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. <laughs> um, if you Uh, are an Indigenous woman and you're out there walking on the street, the assumption is going to be that you are available Mm -hmm. for prostitution, that you are available uh, to be bought. Um, And it doesn't matter. You could be 90 years old um, out there and there's still going to be that assumption. Um, And the children can be very young, as in New Zealand. There are eight, nine-year-old Indigenous girls being used in prostitution, particularly, of course, since the decriminalization and real construction of the prostitution. Yes. So very, very young girls and, and, um, you know, with gangs and stuff like that, we see here as well. Um, you know, even younger than that, you know, you're looking at five, six years old, potentially even younger than that. Um, and high, high rates of incest, um, within, uh, indigenous families. So high rates of incest and high rates of sexual, very high rates of sexual assault of girls. Um, so they're kind of, you're getting set up for prostitution, you're getting kind of set up by indigenous men and then knocked down <laughs> by white men. Yeah, but, very um, so, in Australia, very similar. Yes, 
so Sarah, uh, so Sarah Carter was talking about this construction of indigenous women, you know, we're just sex crazy. You know, these were all lies that were created by, by men. Um, and then she talked about the, the construction of, of, uh, of white women. And so this idea, um, of, of white women as being fragile, as being in need of protection, you know, as, uh, um, you know, kind of like the mothers of the nation or, you know, just needing to, um, yeah, just being very, very fragile uh, and needing to be protected. And the way that they that they spun this was essentially, uh, well, you know, these white women need to be protected from these, you know, crazy ass, you know, violent squaws. So we're going to uh, adopt all of this legislation that basically um puts indigenous women and men um, on reserves and doesn't let them leave. So, and then, you know, started um, in, uh, adopting all of this kind of legislation that restricted our movement, that took away land, took away, you know, anything kind of, you know, everything, anything and everything. Um, uh, and so in that process, so they were using white women, right, as this reasoning or excuse um, to, to, uh, to really come down hard, um, on indigenous, on indigenous women, um, and indigenous men. But the reality of the situation, of course, was that indigenous women were not like sex, crazy, violent savages and white women were not fragile, you know, in need of protection. The reality at that time was that, um, you know, Indigenous women were women with all of our complexities and, you know, realities and and that white women at that time who had been brought to Canada, so they didn't have any choice in the matter, um, were like digging ditches and building houses and, you know, had to be doing very, you know, had to survive in this this uh, environment that they were not used to and that could be very harsh. So they were not, you know, these fragile little flowers. Um, in need of protection. And so, so Carter talks about, you know, that, but then uh, goes on to, to say then that these kind of constructions um, were how they were used to build Canada, the nation of Canada, but also yeah. how they were used to separate white women from Indigenous women so that we weren't able to, um, you know, come together and build solidarity um, and these kinds of things. Yes, and they built Canada as they did all these other countries mm -hmm. in a very firm financial way. I mean, they, the profits were came from yes. the way that these women were used very much. Now, mm -hmm. Just go on a bit with your book. Uh, so you interviewed women from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. How did you organize the material from your interviews? That is sort of what were the themes and the chapters? Because I, unfortunately, I haven't read the book, so I can't comment on that. So can you explain that to us? Yeah. So I spoke with a lot of women. So I spoke with women um, who had survived prostitution. I spoke with women who were experts on prostitution. Um, and I spoke with, uh, yeah, so those are kind of the two groups um, of women, essentially, that I was I was speaking with. So I was able to get a, um, you know, and of course many women were, were both. Um, so I was able to get a really great, uh, um, you know, uh, it's like two in the morning, sorry. <laughs> a great cross section of women, um, you know, in this. And so what I, what I did was, um, 
So what I did in Canada, so it was much more difficult in New Zealand um, and Australia. And um, I actually didn't formally speak with survivors of prostitution in New Zealand. And I didn't do that because I think it's unethical at this point in time. If I were to go there and speak with a woman who was in prostitution or who had been in prostitution and she's ripping open her wounds and telling me all of these horrific things that has been done to her, that is being done to her. And then I just like fuck off back home and leave her there with no connection to services or anybody that can actually help her in that moment. I'm like, that's not, that's not right. So if I'm going to do that, I feel like I would need to then, you know, stay be stuck with that woman, <laughs> you know, and follow through and help her out. Cause I just think that to go to kind of parachute into somewhere and, and ask women to tell you the most horrific things that have been the most horrific and humiliating and degrading things that have been done to them. And then just like leave them standing there um, is just unethical. So because there are no services that help women um, to get out in New Zealand, I just was like, I can't do this here. There, there is in Canada. So that's kind of how I, I found women was I, um, and this was my, my women's committee made sure that we had a certain criteria that women had been out for at least two years, that they were connected to some type of um, service or community service or social service that was providing them with support. Um, again, so I'm not just like ripping open wounds and running away. Um, so what did you find out though from New Zealand? So I found out, um, in a lot of ways, I guess I, I, I kind of, I found out what I, it, it confirmed what a lot of what I already knew, <laughs> which is these, um, that the, that the male violence um, in Indigenous women's lives basically starts from the time you're born and goes until you die, essentially. So it's not, we're not looking at kind of isolated incidences of male violence that might happen once or twice over the course of your lifetime. It's consistent. And yeah. it is absolutely degrading. Um, so you have that, that additional layer of, of racism um, what else I learned? So there was some women that I spoke to that were in what would be considered, you know, high class escorts who were Indigenous women. And so they would often try to present themselves as, you know, Italian or some other kind of, mm -hmm. um, you know, ethnicity so that they uh, because they knew they knew the risks. Um, but I think that that was really important because most the majority over vast uh, overwhelming uh, studies that have been done on prostitution in Canada have been done on uh, prostitution that happens on the street in major centers. So we haven't looked very much at what goes on on reserves in rural or remote communities, but we also haven't looked at the brothels and escort services. Um, so the overrepresentation is likely much, much higher than, than we actually think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was... Um, I mean, I knew that to be true already, but it definitely confirmed that there, you know, it's not women are in prostitution in all kinds of ways. One of the other things that I that I learned as well, uh, and I was speaking to this one woman and she's like, you know, 
there's so many women, so many of our women are in prostitution. And she's like, maybe they've been in for a week or maybe they go in for a year. You know, maybe they turn, you know, one trick or 10 tricks or 500 tricks. But she's like, there's a lot of women out there who are never going to speak to a researcher. They're never going to tell, or they're never going to tell anybody what happened to them, you know, because of the shame, because of the repercussions, all of these kinds of things. So she's like, you're going to have all of these, you know, these women who are just never going to say that to anybody else. So in that sense too, the overrepresentation is likely much, much higher Mm -hmm. uh, again than we think that it is. And so, um, so definitely that got me kind of, um, in that, you know, all the women who have been killed in that process, whether directly or indirectly, you know, killed um, either while in prostitution or afterwards, um, you know, who, are, who aren't going to be able to speak either because they're dead, um, they've been murdered or they've gone missing. So, um, so it was a lot of uh, kind of confirms in a lot of ways um, what I knew and just, you know, these, hor- these, these stories were just, it was so intense. Um, it was definitely a lot of, of, of male violence uh, within the family. A lot of women had been involved in, or, or had been taken away and placed into foster care or some kind of, um, you know, child protection services. Um, so that was very, very common. Um, a lot of poverty. Uh, what else was common was a lot of women, um, that I spoke to either their mothers or their grandmothers or sometimes and their grandmothers were in prostitution or their sisters and their cousins. So it was always something that was um, around, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, can, I, can I just ask? I think uh, when I was living in Australia, it was very, very difficult for Indigenous women and feminists working on violence against women to speak about violence from Indigenous men to Indigenous women, which is something you've been talking about. And I, I always assumed it was because the left in Australia in particular had created a kind of noble savage myth, which uh-huh. meant that it simply wasn't possible to question the fact that Indigenous men would in a sense, be the best of men, in, in fact. And I wonder, I think that that does happen in terms of Maori culture in New Zealand. And I wonder whether it's happening in Canada too, because it makes it very, very difficult to talk about the sort of things that you're talking about. They, they're just completely banned. You cannot dent that image somehow. Uh-huh. It is. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of factors. I do think definitely that that kind of the noble savage, this idea that um, you know, people want to be as anti-racist as possible. Um, they don't care about women, right? So it's much easier to be <laughs> anti-racist than it is to be pro-woman, right? So they'll be worried about being called racist if they're holding Indigenous men to account. Um, some of the other reasons uh, why as well are, um, so sometimes what happens or oftentimes what happens in Indigenous communities um, is if there is, uh, you know, a man is battering, for example, his his wife, uh, the woman in his home, and she raises the alarm and she tells somebody, um, often what ends up happening is they remove the children. So instead of removing him or criminalizing him, uh, the children are then removed. And so women are afraid because they don't want to lose their children. Um, so they'll, they, you know, they won't, they won't speak up. 
Um, we've heard, you know, lots of statistics about Indigenous men who are, you know, they face harsher penalties in the criminal justice system, which is true, but I don't really care about that. Like, that's their fight. I mean, if, you know, if if his if his fight is to make sure that he gets the same prison sentence, you know, as a white guy for raping a woman, like, I don't I don't care about that. Um, but that is in the back of a lot of women's minds, right? They're going to be blamed then you know, for whatever happens to him, which is common, I think, for all women, but particularly for women in Indigenous communities and other racialized communities as well, knowing that you are um, going to be, you know, opening this up and um, you're going to get blamed essentially for whatever it ends up happening to him mm -hmm. um, makes it makes it very, very difficult. You also, in Indigenous communities, there is a lot of um, there's a sense that I don't want to say loyalty, but um, there's a lot of like Inter family interconnection that happens too, right? So it becomes, sometimes it gets very difficult um, depending on, you know, what family he's in, what family he comes from, you know, who, who he's related to, all of these kinds of power dynamics um, that play out. But um, yeah, definitely among, you know, the very kind of, I think, vocal people in Canada, there's this idea that Indigenous men are just, they're, they're, they're victims too. And they very much like to, I mean, that's why they had this kind of degendered definition of colonization, right? So they could they could be victims as well. You know, it's not their fault that they're raping or or battering women, right? It's because they were colonized. So I, I remember um, one a case in Australia where on um, indigenous lands, uh, a woman was being beaten by her partner, uh, but the refuge which was on those lands was run by the big man's family, and there are always mm. men on the reserves who actually run pretty much everything. And so, in in the other, in the end, she couldn't get away. Also, she wasn't allowed to drive the cars. Women weren't allowed to drive the cars, uh -huh. uh, so she killed him, mm. uh, which was you know, the end result. Her only her only way out. She her thought, only yeah. Way out. So it's very interesting to hear what you're saying and, and make these comparisons across countries. Uh -huh. I mean, uh -huh. we are actually moving towards the end of this really, really interesting webinar. I oh my goodness, we are. We are. I wonder, is there anything in particular you'd like to say at this point? Because I'm, I'm surely going to ask you about Women's Studies Online if you don't. So is there anything else you want to say here? Yes. Thank you to Spinifex Press again for their incredible and very very brave work and um also you know to you sheila and and, and joe as well for the work that you do and um for all the women that are here well it's absolutely delightful for me to talk to you can i just ask you now about women's studies online because i think a lot of women might not know about it so the situation is that Cherry, uh, finding it, assuming that she would not get a reasonable job in academe because of her politics. Oh, no, I was I was it was demonstrated to me <laughs> a few yeah. times. Yeah. That okay. they're like, no, we're not hiring you because of this. Yeah. So she set up something very splendid, which is Women's Studies Online. That's great. I mean, I, I would advise women on here to have a look at Women's Studies Online. I've asked for the link in, in the web, in the chat. I'm not sure if anybody's gonna put it in for me um, so that they can find out what's being offered because women can take it from anywhere. That's the situation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, everybody can sign up. So we're, we're relatively new. So we're, you know, working out some, you know, we're, we're always self-reflecting to make it better 
so yeah, so we definitely welcome women to join and um, yeah, and just let us know what's useful and what's not. And and at the time yeah. now, when women's studies is pretty much gone, to have mm-hmm. you there doing this is pretty wonderful. So apart from all of that, thanks very very much for doing this webinar, which has been absolutely terrific. Thank you so much. Now I'm now I'm like super awake. <laughs> it was such a great discussion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to everybody. Thank you very much indeed. All right.